It was a huge crowd that day. Certainly tens of thousands of people, if not hundreds of thousands of people. And I've had the privilege of being in the location where that took place, standing on the Mount of Olives as Jesus walked in the Eastern Gate into Jerusalem. And it's built up a little bit around there, but it's really a sloping plain and it's really large as you head down to the city walls and as he would have entered the city gate. And like I said, there was a huge, huge crowd of people. And I think most every one of them that were in that crowd was whispering to one another and saying to one another and wondering, is he the one? Now, I want to suggest to you that I think they were asking the wrong question. I think they should have been asking this question, which one is he? Because if they'd known the answer to the latter, they would have known the answer to the former. And if I could, I'd like to make the question very personal for you. Who is he to you? Who is he to you? So if you have your Bible or your device, or if you want to borrow one, there's one at the back. I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 21. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. It's one of four biographies for what we call gospels, stories, historical accounts of the life of Jesus. And Matthew was one of his leadership team, and he wrote about Jesus in this passage in Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1 through 11. So let me read. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, that's part of his leadership team, they called them disciples or apostles, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her, Unlike, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. So back in history, in the Old Testament of the Bible, the prophet Zechariah said this, say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey on a colt, the full of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in the Galilee, in the northern part of Israel. You've heard, and this has been articulated and displayed on stage today, that all through this last week, there was a large group of children here at the church for our annual day camp. And they um, 
were so much fun to have around the church and they were very exuberant. And through this entire week, they have been immersed in the details and the truths about Jesus in the week just leading up to his false arrest, his false conviction, his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. And they've been weighing in on this and learning about this and about the implications of these different things and learning about all of the different things that took place. And so when Jesus did this and when they were faced with this, the people that were in the crowd that day were wondering, is this the king that we've been waiting for? The people, as I said, were asking, is he the one? And they should have been asking, which one is he? And I think some of us still wrestle with that kind of question today. It's Passover time, and the Jews, the historical records suggest numbers of anywhere coming of people coming from all around Jerusalem of several hundred thousand people up to by a person by the name of Josephus said up to two million people would descend on Jerusalem for a celebration. And they would come to remember the event in their shared history where God had miraculously delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And the Bible tells us to remember the deliverance and the activity of God in our lives. And Jesus is heading there as well. But his leadership team, the disciples, have been saying to him, we don't think you should go. We don't think it's safe for you to go. Because the people that are opposed to you, some of the political leaders that were afraid he was usurping their power, we think they have it in for you. And we think they're going to try to do something. We think they're going to try to kill you. Please don't go. But Jesus went anyway. It's very important to know, even though he was being warned, he knew much more about what was going on in this situation. As you read the stories of his life, he went up to Jerusalem with his eyes wide open. He knew exactly what was going to be taking place in the days to come. He knew it in intricate detail. He knew that he would be falsely accused. He knew that they would pay people off to lie about him. He knew that there would be no real evidence whatsoever because there was none against him. He knew that Pilate would want to just release him, who was the Roman governor, because he could see. And Pilate was a ruthless man that never hesitated to kill people. If he thought somebody threatened him even that much, he would either have them imprisoned or killed. He knew this was going to happen. He knew that he would be beaten and spit on and ridiculed and die an excruciating death, that he would be buried and that later he would be resurrected from the dead. He knew all of this going in and yet he still went. You know, sometimes... We have a little expression we'll use. It's a good thing I didn't know before I started on this particular journey in life 
or this particular project I was asked to do, it's a good thing I didn't know up front all of the obstacles and difficulties and painful things I would go through on that journey because if I'd known then what I know now, I would never have started down that path. And yet Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. He references it many different times in the other biographies of his life. He knew what was going to happen, but he still came. And the reason he did that is that he did it for you. He decided to sacrifice everything in order to offer a relationship with God for you. At this point in history, we know that all around Israel, they had heard about him. They'd been on their social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Snapchat. There was buzz all around the entire nation. Everybody was talking about it in the smallest villages and in the bigger cities, in the countryside. They heard about the miraculous things this guy had been doing. They heard about his teaching ability. They were saying things like, this guy teaches with an authority that no one before or since has ever had. There is something special, there's something absolutely unique about this guy. And they're whispering, they're, they're having coffee together, they're talking about it openly, and they're saying, maybe, just maybe, he's the one. This maybe, he's the one. The one that we've been taught all our life and all of the generations before us have been told is coming. One of the things as they thought about it though, and they were analyzing it carefully, was very confusing to them because as they observed what he was doing and what he was not doing, one of the things he wasn't doing that they expected him to do was to put himself forward politically. They had always been taught that the one that they were told to expect would be a political warrior type king, the Messiah. But this Jesus didn't do any of that stuff. And they couldn't quite figure that out. They'd been taught to expect this kind of Messiah, this political leader that would, at that point in history, they assumed would rise up the whole nation to war, lead them in a war of liberation against the Roman oppressors. Now, I don't know how much you think about Jesus. I don't know if you even think about Jesus at all. But when you do think about Jesus, what have you thought about him? What are your, what are your assumptions about him and his motives? Matthew, who observed this as an eyewitness, had a great crowd of people go out to meet him. And they're going with the motivation to draw him out. They want him to take the next step. They want him to make some political statements. 
They want to then declare him as their king. They want him to lead them in a war against the Romans and liberate them from them. And they're shouting and they're extremely enthusiastic. It says in verse 10, Matthew says, the whole city was stirred. Now, when this was originally written in the language that it was written in, which is Greek, that word actually means it was like a seismic event. Have you ever been in an earthquake? I've been in a minor earthquake. And it affects everything. I looked up and I see the paintings swinging on the wall. And the building is creaking and groaning. A seismic event impacts everything. There's, like I said, we don't know for sure, but at bottom line, there would have been tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people in this crowd cheering him on. And I was trying to think of a time in my life, and I, the, the first one that came to me was, my dad took my sister and I to a football game in Seattle, an NFL game. And it's an incredible event to be part of. We were up in the nosebleeds, and I always heard that when 60,000 people are cheering, it gets loud. So I brought earplugs along, and I thought, I'm going to try to do it without the earplugs. Within moments of the crowd starting to scream and yell, and everybody was standing and cheering, the sound was overwhelming, and I immediately put earplugs in, and it was still incredibly loud. So imagine this crowd, they're chanting, they're they're cheering him on, and they're wanting him to rise up. The text says they lay their coats down in front of him. And this is something that comes from 2 Kings chapter 9. It was a way of them symbolically submitting to him. It was a way of them symbolically saying, you are our king. Then it also says in the text that they cut down palm branches and they were waving them and laying them in front of them. And this, for them, had military overtones harking back to something that had happened 170 years ago, again in their shared history. The tone of their language and the tone of their actions tells us they see Jesus or they want Jesus to be the Messiah, warrior, king. They begin to scream at the top of their lungs, Hosanna, which means save, I pray. And they accompany with this words of prayer, praise and words of worship because they're acknowledging him spiritually as well. And they want to and they begin to call him the king of Israel. As I said, they're tired of the shackles of Rome and they believe he's going to lead them out of those shackles. And they are attempting to draw him out and to praise him and to worship. And they did this because they thought he was do he would do what they always wanted him to do they did all this because they wanted him to do what he what they had always wanted him to do and so again i don't know how much you think about jesus but if and when you think about jesus what have you wanted him to do for you I think that's an important question. What have you wanted him to do for you? 
I'm guessing that a large number of them were sincere. They hoped this would work out with him, the way they were projecting onto him. But the reality is they entered this situation with wrong information and wrong assumptions and wrong motives. And we can be like that sometimes too, can't we, in life? And sometimes when we approach Jesus, I know I can at times. We can be really enthusiastic. We can have the right symbology. We can say all the right words. And we can do these things and still have a fundamental misunderstanding of who Jesus really is and what Jesus really did and be way off base, and we may not even be doing it deliberately, but maybe it is, but, but likely it isn't, and we're way off base in our understanding and our approach to Jesus because we've never invested the energy to actually explore who he says he is and what he said he did. All of the children at day camp this last week discovered these things together. And Pastor Justine said to me, you know, we're going to be doing this week, and so here's what I'd like you to talk on. I'd like, to talk, I'd like you to talk about how it all began at the beginning of the week, as Jesus is entering by the, the east gate into Jerusalem. And so the kids have been discovering this all week at day camp, and uh, one of the things they discovered about these crowds, and it's kind of ha- sad to say this, but they discovered that the sincerity level and the devotion level of these crowds at best was extremely limited because later in the week when Jesus is falsely arrested and they pay people off to lie about him and he's before Pilate and another guy by the name of Herod being looked at and examined, you know how many of the crowds showed up to defend him? Not one. Not one out of a massive amount of people. And so devotion or interest based just sort of superficially on curiosity or popularity can really fade quickly. There has to be a deep-seated, unbending commitment. And that's one of the things that Jesus asks for. He's not interested, to be honest with you, in like a really superficial kind of approach to him. He's kind of an all-or-nothing guy, and he wants a deep-seated commitment. Now, for the crowds, when it becomes apparent that Jesus would not dance to their desired tune, and it seems to the crowds like he couldn't or he wouldn't do what they wanted, they immediately discarded him. And that happens to a lot of people in our culture right now with the cancer, the cancer, the, the cancel culture. I can't talk, sorry. Not the cancer, it's the cancel culture that we see at work all the time in our world right now. We also know that even the leaders, if you read their story, the guys that have been hanging with him for three years, they didn't really get it either. It says in the book of John, one of the parallel uh, biographies to the life of Jesus, John says, 
they, they only really understood this stuff after Jesus rose from the dead. They began to think about it and the symbolism and what he was doing, and they, they only got it then. I'm wondering if you've ever taken the time to seriously examine and think about why Jesus came and why he did what he did. Because this passage is rich with a ton of symbolism. We've referenced a few of them already. He enters the city riding on a donkey's colt. This is in fulfillment of a, of a, a prophet, a guy that was talking about what was going to come back in the book of Zechariah, that this would happen. And the crowd ignored this. And this is a significant thing. They were educated in this stuff. And they knew how the Messiah was supposed to come. They'd always been taught that Messiah will come as a political warrior king. And the way in that culture you demonstrated that is you would ride into town on a white stallion. This is a neon light telling everyone, I'm here to make war on your behalf, rally to my side. And for Jesus to ride in on a donkey's colt, on a donkey's foal, sent a very contradictory message. Because riding in like that sent an equally bright message, and the message was this, I'm a man of peace. This was the common transportation of a priest or a merchant or a commoner. And so the, cho- the crowd chose to ignore the obvious sign. And again, I'm just going to ask you, do you think we ever ignore the message that God sends us? Because we have a certain mindset about him and we want him to do it the way we want him to do it. Palm branches were accurate, but for Jesus, they signified a spiritual victory. A spiritual victory which can impact, if you let it, you have to let it, it will impact every day of your life for the rest of the days you live on this earth, but then it will also impact your entire eternity. And so the palm branches were a symbolic spiritual victory. The military victory, you know, if you need a military victory, nothing wrong with that. But here's the thing about a military victory. It only lasts until someone tougher than you comes along. A spiritual victory affects every day and all of eternity. And so some of the people in the crowd came seeking faith. Some of them came seeking a relationship with God through Jesus, but many came just for the show. I want to be entertained. I want to see a miracle. And it seems for some of them, their motive in praising him was what's in it for me. And I think we can be like that sometimes when we come to Jesus. Can I I just kind of gently invite you to consider your motivations when you think about Jesus and approach him? What was his real reason? What was his real reason to come with his eyes wide open, knowing what he was going to experience and yet still coming? Well, it's interesting because just a few verses previous in the previous chapter, we're told his reason for coming. In verse 28 of chapter 20, it says this, the son of man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. And so this past week, a central focus for the children. We saw it on the screen. We heard it in the songs. A central focus for the children at day camp was this. Here is why Jesus came. And they were invited to allow their lives to be changed by that truth. That a relationship with God has absolutely nothing to do with what we do or not do. A relationship with God is only possible based on receiving what Jesus did on our behalf. That he went to the cross when we didn't deserve it to die in our place. To pay for our sin that every single one of us has done, the wrong choices we've deliberately made, or the choices we didn't do that we knew we should have. These choices separate us from an absolutely holy and pure God. And the children was said, were told the good news is that Jesus came to allow that relationship to be restored. And this is at the heart of why he went into what he went into with his eyes wide open. He did that for you. So Jesus came, the scripture says, as the Lamb of God, the Prince of Peace. Jesus came, it says in that verse, to give his life as a ransom for the many. And here's the way it gets extremely personal. He came as a ransom for you. He came as a ransom for you. So he invites you to respond. The children were invited to respond. But God also invites you to respond. He died in your place too, on your behalf, so that your sin can be forgiven, that it can be cleaned up, that it can be cleansed, that it can be removed. So that you can have... um, a purpose-filled life that isn't just temporary in nature, but it affects every day of your life because, like I said, he's an all-in kind of guy. He was already all-in for us, and so he says, I want you to be all-in with me. Uh, It affects every day of your life, and it'll affect all of your eternity. We asked the children if they would commit their life to Jesus. And this text makes that same invitation. I ask you, would you be willing to surrender your life to Jesus in that way? Who is Jesus? You.